0: It is the movie that has brought adult audiences back during the pandemic. We're talking about MGM and United Artists releasing's House of Gucci. And today we have with us screenwriter Roberto Bentivegna to tell us more about it on Crew Call. Tell me about getting in the door with Ridley. Did did his um, production company read The Eel? And that's, what, and that's what brought you in. That's exactly right, yeah. Um, I wrote a
1: script, The Heel, uh, a while ago, like eight years ago. And it was on a thing called The Blacklist. Yes. And I was working with a producer named Kevin Walsh, um, who was helping me put that movie together. And we never got the movie made, by the way. It's still in that process. Uh, but we had Sam Rockwell attached for many years. And anyway, so when Kevin Walsh became president at Scott Free, uh, you know, Kevin's been such an amazing champion of my work pretty much from, from the moment I met him. And he just, you know, he said to Ridley, he was like, I've got this writer, he wrote this thing, here it is, read it. And Ridley read it and really loved it. And then brought me in to meet with Janina, his wife, who's also mm-hmm. the producer of Gucci. And, uh, you know, they have been trying for like 20 years, something like that. And they had a revolving door of of writers that were were much more prestigious and expensive than me and um they sort of threw it at me like a like a bone <laughs> you know they were like I, I honestly think that they were kind of at the end of the road um they didn't give me any guidelines they didn't say like this is what we think it should be it was a really kind of like uh, 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 Ave Maria I think um and it just it clicked you know it clicked because I, I grew up in Milan and my mother's a fashion designer. Ridley, um, obviously, I adore Ridley's films, and I thought in the back of my mind maybe he's going to like it. I didn't think he's going to direct it, um, but it felt very freeing to have had all those other writers come before me because I knew I had nothing to lose. You know, I knew I could just give it, a, give it everything I had.
0: What couldn't they
1: crack in the
0: story? Would you, what do you? Well, some of the- from
1: what I, yeah, from what I know, because I haven't read. all the scripts but I think the most the the main thing was a lack of humor uh, a lack of specificity um, a feeling of sort of biopiciness you know when it's like and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened and uh, to me it was always going to be a big almost like Scarface you know it was always going to have this sort of colorful bigger than bigger than life, heightened quality. Like, you know, you're watching a movie, definitely not some sort of, uh, you know, neo-realist drama. Um, And uh, yeah, that's why it's kind of interesting reading reviews and responses that some people think the humor is unintentional. Like, it's supposed to be fucking funny.
0: You know what, (laughs) yeah, I was gonna say, reviewers have the worst sense of humor. Now watch. I'll get a thousand comments as to why (laughs) that I'm attacking critics now. Yeah. Uh, I saw, I'm going to, I'm going to gush. I saw this movie at the first screening when they showed it at the Academy Museum. And uh, it is one of my favorite films of the year. It is amazing. Oh, Thank you so much. Uh, It, even though it's over two hours, it doesn't feel like it. It goes at such a fast pace and love the characters like you said the whole heightened you know they're like people we haven't met before and they're they're so they're so over the top which makes it intriguing the other thing i was going to say was you brought up in that q a and this is the film that i was thinking of throughout the godfather yeah you tell me about because that's such a storied film such a classic film such a film that when we look back at it we would we always say oh the they would never make this today. Right. Tell me about the goalposts that, your inspirations from that film and because it's got a godfather feeling. Yes, because it's about Italian family. And, and, and but tell me about that.
1: Well, I think the main thing was the fact that every time I, I read uh, interviews with Coppola about the godfather, he always said it wasn't about the mafia, it was about a family. And, um, And that really struck a a nerve because in a way, this is not about fashion. It's about a family. And it happens to be a family that's in fashion, but I didn't want it to feel like some sort of, uh, you know, commercial for Gucci or uh, something super, super, like, you know, Michael Bay does Gucci. Like, you know. Uh, Although I did think of the fashion shows as set pieces in an action movie. I was like, okay, I'm going to have the Versace show. I'm going to have the Tom Ford show. Um, The Paolo Gucci, obviously, is kind of a, A mockery show but but really the fashion shows like the three shows were kind of um, the equivalent of explosions in an action movie you know of like a helicopter attack um but yeah the main thing was um uh was just to kind of create a sense of intimacy uh kind of like in the godfather the fact that even though you have this huge canvas and you're dealing with all these massive themes that at the end of the day, it's just people and it's betrayals and it's, you know, jealousies and double crossings and uh, loves and, and loves that go wrong. And, uh, and really kind of creating a sense of, uh, of relatability to the whole thing, which, uh, yeah.
0: My editor, uh, Mike Fleming also loves this movie. And he, he speaks about Paolo Gucci as the Fredo mm-hmm. of it all. Was, yeah. was Paolo really like Fredo in real
1: life? Well, yeah, I mean, that's where you have to take liberty and kind of take, take the seed of the real person and let it grow into your creative invention. But I think I always thought of him as a little bit of a Fredo for sure. Um, you know, he definitely had a, a a complex, and his father was so suave and so you you can smell the cologne of Aldo when you look at a picture of him it's that kind of person you know he was so he was well first of all he loved ladies he was quite well known around town um for for being quite frivolous with the ladies and I think Paolo just was overwhelmed by him you know and uh and again we're talking about relatability I think if you took that relationship outside of a Gucci context you could put it anywhere and it would still hit a nerve I think um I know kids. I know sons who feel overwhelmed by their fathers, and are in the shadow of their very successful, very boisterous father. And um, and so for me, that was kind of a really, really touching and and really fun relationship to explore. And and of course, having Al Pacino in the movie, how can you not think of Fredo? You know that scene when he hugs him and says, "You're an idiot, but you're my idiot." You know,
0: <laughs> I thought
1: of uh, I thought of Fredo when he kisses Fredo on the mouth. I think did it's your mouth, right? Yeah. Did you
0: write that line before or did you write that on set? No, I, I wrote that line before. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The only line that I wrote on, there was a
1: couple of lines I wrote on set. Um, the one that I really liked the most was when, when uh, Paolo says to Maurizio, I can finally soar like a pigeon. Because <laughs> you know, he, <laughs> he has this weird with pigeon fetish, and uh, I just love, I love, and he says it so earnestly too, you know, like, like he sees the pigeon as this sort of, you know, bold eagle, uh, finally I can be free.
0: So, um, so I remember Gaga saying, no, 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 no. I didn't want to meet Patrizia, because Patrizia is still alive, because I wanted, basically she didn't want anything to temper with her preparation or be overly favorable toward, you know, she wanted to play her, I think in an unbiased way. Yeah. Given that Patricia's still alive. You've got the book. Did you do a deep dive? Like, did you, did you read the book front, you know, front to back? Like, how did you, you had, yes, you had previous drafts. What are you taking? What are you not taking? How do you, how do you grow and make this on your own?
1: Well, I didn't look at the previous drafts because I knew that they failed. Right. So I I, I didn't want to build on on rubble. Essentially, mm-hmm. uh, I felt like it was a it was a doomed it would have been a doomed attempt. Uh, but I think the most important thing was just uh, using Sarah's book as uh, as a great foundation, just in terms of of understanding the story, understanding the beats, the bi- the biographical notes. And her story goes from you know 1890, when Guccio was born, basically to 1998, I think, when Patrizia was was found guilty. So, you know, it really does go through the whole story, and um, and I had to be quite selective about what to focus on. But really, for me, it was it was the book, and it was also diving into articles written by the Italian press. At the time of these events happening, and I'm talking not just the murder, but, but even the, the squabbles between the, the family members and the tax evasion, and you know Aldo going to prison and Paolo starting his new line, all of that stuff. Just you know going back to the to the roots of it and seeing what people were saying about them at the time, I thought that was really interesting because obviously hindsight is uh, you know is a different thing, but um, seeing how they were viewed by the Italian press and and the Italian community at the time was very, um, very eye-opening. And then of course, putting it all away and just kind of letting the, you know, letting the, the characters hopefully come to life and, and speak to me.
0: It's interesting. You know, these, these tales about these fashion houses, not all of them, some of them, it's always a rise and fall like Halston, is mm. another one of of excess, total excess, and an implosion. Um, Pierre Cardin, more of a tale of selling out, but yet he sold out, but uh, uh, but somehow he was able to keep something intact toward the end of his life. Uh, but it's it's just interesting. I guess it's just that's commercial art, the the risk and like. What's your take on just it it, it it's just amazing. They were left in something so glamorous and glorious. How they just didn't change with the times. I mean, fashion—you've always got to change. You've always got to. I've heard stories. My my niece worked on a, a a fashion show with Tom Ford. She did lighting. He came in. He ripped up everything the night before, and completely one eighty one eighty the the design of it all. Amazing. Um, uh, I'm just curious, like what cat why didn't why didn't why didn't they listen to Paolo sometimes?
1: Yeah, well Paolo, the irony about Paolo by the way is that his designs look very much like what Gucci's doing today. Uh-huh. So he was quite the the pioneer. Um, but I think I don't know, perhaps it's the fact that fashion more than anything is uh, is visible. And if you can't keep up with the trends, you are really left in the dust. and and like mu- music has a sort of a retro vintage cool factor. Um, and of course, you know, passion does as well. but but at the same time, if if some if something comes across as as chic as not so chic, um, it's very blatant. it's it's very much in your face. Um, so it's just maybe it's that. it's it's the fact that they couldn't quite keep up with the times that they couldn't reinvent themselves um and that's the genius of gucci right now is that they they have been able to keep a foot in the past uh they still have the the moccasins they still have the handbags but then they also have things that are so outlandish and so garish and so big and and colorful uh that are being embraced by you know 20 year old musicians and and uh, this whole new generation of people. So they've really kind of cracked that code of uh, appealing to everybody.
0: Now, um, in your preparation for this, was there ever talk of going to meet with Patrizia? Or is she of sound mind? Or would that have tainted the, the creative process? Much like Gaga spoke of for her. Yeah, I never
1: really thought about meeting Patrizia. Um, I would meet her now, you know. I think now that the movie's done, yeah, sure, I'd love to. But I think for for, for practical purposes, it would uh, it would not have been helpful mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because um, just watching her in interviews. Well, first of all, there's the legal issues. Aha! Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just don't know legally if. Um, she would have been able to give me any information that was not in the book or she might have exposed herself to even more legal issues if she suddenly admitted to something that was not uh, prosecuted. Understood. <laughs> and then I would be I would be seen as a as a co-conspirator in another mental crime. Uh, but the main thing is really, and I can understand this. I mean, everybody wants to be the the, the good guy in their own movie. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine her suddenly opening her heart up and saying, I did what I did and this is why, and, and I'm a, you know, it requires an, an amount of self-awareness and uh, maybe even self-deprecation that from what I've seen is not quite apparent with Patricia. And, um, at least that's the impression that I get from watching her in, in interviews and, and reading her interviews.
0: Now there's two daughters. One is portrayed in the film. Mm-hmm. how are the daughters to this day? Are they okay?
1: Yeah, I think it's a very difficult thing when your husband, well, sorry, when your father is murdered yeah. by your mother, and your mother survives, but is deeply damaged and spends, you know, 20 years in prison. And then, of course, the irony of it is that uh, when Patrizia was uh, released from prison, mm-hmm. she was uh, entitled to Maurizio's inheritance. Yes, uh, not I'm not sure exactly how much, but she was definitely entitled to the house in St. Moritz and to the yacht, the Creole. Um, And so the daughters are in a fight right now, a legal fight with her over the inheritance. So the story keeps going on. And, um, you know, unfortunately it's one of those classic uh, money doesn't buy happiness warning tales. And uh, I think they're all pretty miserable. I can't imagine this being fun for them seeing the movie coming out, but, at the same time it's a work of fiction and it should be treated as such
0: is there an entire separate story alone in her capture i i i don't know i'm not privy to details but i've heard her cat patricia's capture is a story in and of itself
1: yeah that's you're absolutely right um, the the capture, the crazy thing is that after she murdered Maurizio, or had him murdered, uh, there was a two-year gap. A lot of people think that she had him killed, and then, you know, one week later, the cops showed up and arrested her. But there was a two-year gap, which is actually a pretty long time, and uh, and she was living a normal life. You know, she obviously would uh, uh, would pretend that she didn't know anything about it, and um At one point, I think there was there was a rumor that it might have been some sort of mafia hit or there was a lot of of various theories as to who could could have been behind the murder. But I think that the thing that got her was that uh, was that somebody who knew the driver uh, who was in prison spoke to somebody else saying, I know who killed Maurizio Gucci. the driver who um the driver who went to the to the office to murder Maurizio spilled the beans with somebody who then spilled the beans to somebody else so it was one of those classic you know uh, things of, of the, the bird speaking too much and um but,
0: was she was, but was she keeping a great cover in Italy? like was it like where's patrizia nobody knows and I don't know, she's an Assisi? <laughs>
1: she was living a very normal life. That's the crazy thing is, is yeah. how, in hindsight, when you look at the photos of her in breast in black at the funeral and uh, and all of that stuff, you think, how could they not know that it was her? Also, okay. because, also she, because she went public on television talking about how she wanted him dead and she would go around Milan asking people who could help her kill him. Uh, so it's crazy, I mean, uh, now it seems absurd, but for two years, people just either didn't want to believe it or, or she was just very clever at, at kind of giving off mixed uh, signals about it, you
0: know. Now, Rodolfo uh, makes a ding, Jeremy Irons' character, and says that she's a mafia. Is that, was that true, or was her dad just a hardworking truck? He just was a hardworking guy that had a, a great truck driving business. That, that was actually
1: Jeremy, that was an ad lib by Jeremy. And yeah. I think, yeah, I think it was Ridley, actually, that for some reason had this idea that that maybe, you know, because he's from the north of Italy, he's a trucker, um, that maybe there was like a, poss- a possibility that he might be connected to, to the mob. But really, it was just a way of saying she's scum.
0: Mm-hmm. It was
1: a way of saying, you know, she's from a different class, um, you know, because the Gucci, the Gucci's thought of themselves as a royal family. Mm -hmm. and uh and i I, in the script i point out to the irony of it being you know that they're basically not they're uh their shoe they're they're, um that the guccio was a guy carrying uh luggage for people in london and um and that's why he got the idea of starting a, a luggage company but uh aldo has that whole monologue about you know there's tuscan aristocracy and it's all bullshit you know um so yeah, I was kind of playing on that, on that irony.
0: So you write a script for Ridley. How does Ridley, talk about Ridley as a collaborator. He was talking about how he's a visceral guy. He sees things visually. How does that, like what kind of notes is he giving you and talk about, talk about working with him? And then coming away, I'm sorry, just adding to this, I loved all the money in the world. I really did. This feels like it's just that much more of a strong man of a film and I'm just yeah. curious. And it has a similar caper, you know, similar kind of thriller who done it feel to it. Mm-hmm. Was there any takeaways from that that for him of what he wanted to avoid or embrace in this? And and, well, and just yeah, if you could talk about working with him. Sure. Yeah. So um,
1: the main thing is really when I wrote the script, Ridley was not involved. Uh, mm-hmm. I wrote it, I wrote it for for his company. I wrote it for Janina. Um, like I said earlier, I thought maybe he would read it. Um, there, there was a part of me either either consciously or subconsciously that thought maybe if he did direct it, that I would want to really kind of infuse it with some visual cues and some uh, even lighting descriptions and things like that, just to give it, to give it sort of a very visual uh, feel, because obviously, if you know that Ridley Scott's directing your film, you have, you know, this visual genius uh, t- turning your pages into images, and and I just wanted to give him stuff to work with, you know, and uh, and so the script, you know, I made I made sure that it was as visual as, as I could, um, and then. After that, really, when I when I sent it to him and he read it, we started working together in summer of two years ago, and we just did a lot of uh, a lot of, of readings and uh, you know as you go through the casting process, different actors come in and out, and sometimes you have to write new scenes for them, sometimes you rethink things, um, sometimes you have Al Pacino and Jeremy Irons, and you realize, oh shit, like we need a scene with both of them together because it would be a miss, missed opportunity. And, and so for example, that scene in the movie was not in the original draft. Um, were they me? Yeah, yeah yeah, yeah. For, yeah, yeah. So I wrote that for them knowing that they would be co-starring together. Um, and on a logistical level, I was in Colombia during COVID. I got stuck in Colombia after going there for a wedding. And Ridley was in France in his, in his vineyard. And so we were working remotely for you know nine months something like that and uh you know doing a lot of zooms and then when adam signed on there was quite a lot of work that we did with him to really kind of of, to mold maurizio uh in a way that he felt happy with so yeah it it was a remote uh collaboration and uh, and then i flew to, to rome directly from bogota and it was amazing to see the movie come to life because i had been in this bubble for a year in Colombia during COVID, and uh, to walk around the hotel, the production offices, and see all these things happening uh, out of nowhere because I, I hadn't been around, you know, so to go from one <laughs> extreme to the next uh, was uh, was pretty mind blowing, actually.
0: Are you London based?
1: I'm. Uh, I'm all over the place. I'm. I was living in Mexico City for a couple of months, and uh, and now I'm here in LA. Doing, doing press, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. I have to figure out where I want to live.
0: The, um, can you tell us about what's next for you? Is it, is it eel or is it, is it something else? Yeah, I, well, it's definitely, I'd definitely
1: love for the eel to, to get moving. Um, I wrote that to direct and uh, that's the, the next step I think for me is to write something that I can direct. So hopefully the eel, maybe something else. Um, and then I wrote a movie for Amazon, uh, that's uh, based on a on a short story by Joe Nesbo, called uh, the movie's called Killer Heat, and the short story is called The Jealousy Man, and I wrote it for um, uh, a director, a wonderful director named William Oldroyd, who did Lady Macbeth, who's now making a movie with Anne Hathaway and uh, and uh, an actress whose name I can't remember, but anyway, yeah, so we're shooting that in Greece next summer, and uh, it has twins in it. It's sort of like a Patricia Highsmith crime thriller, uh, and I'll just say that it has twins in it, and that one actor's gonna play both twins, which I always love in movies. <laughs> tell,
0: tell us about breaking into screenwriting. Um, what, what advice can, uh, can you offer young writers? Is it the standard, you know, have three spec scripts, original spec scripts at your hand? Like, breaking into screenwriting today at a time when You know, I mean, yes, you could argue there's more opportunities with streaming and whatnot. However, it's a whole different game from the early 90s, the days of the million dollar screenplay, Mm -hmm. you know, when million dollar screenplays were being sold and things were high concept action thrillers. Can you talk about, can you just talk about the, the current state for young writers?
1: Yeah, well, I have to be honest, I don't really follow these these um, thought processes, you know, like, uh, mm-hmm. do I write a, ske- a spec? Do I follow what sold last week, uh, all of that stuff? I don't know, maybe I'm a bit lazy, but I just never really, um, I never thought of that. Um, I think for me, you know, I went to Columbia University for grad school. I graduated in 2010. So it's been a full 10 years plus to get my first movie produced. And, uh, you know, I'm 39. Um, I'm glad that it's this I'm glad that it's a a film of this level and of this magnitude Um, it's a classic tale of just keeping going because honestly one movie is all it takes one script and um, I I had very positive signs along the way you know I mean even something as you know I, I the blacklist obviously was a big thing for me and um selling the script to Film Nation, and I worked with Lynn Ramsey on something, and you know so there was never any question that I was sort of on the right track, but it really just took one thing and and it takes someone like Ridley to unlock the 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 gates because you couldn't get this movie made with anybody else I mean, maybe with two or three other directors, but it's the list is so small um
0: so you know great mentors like Walsh
1: and great mentors like Kevin, totally. And I was very lucky that Kevin, Kevin believed in me from, from the beginning.
0: Because sometimes with young writers, correct me if I'm wrong, there's a situation where you're working on something, you crack something and then some other big name writer comes in, takes the credit you're pushed to a story by, and then it's like, that's a whole other uphill battle. So you've broken, the writer's broken through, but you're, you know, yeah. ten, you know almost 10 steps behind on your own idea.
1: Yeah, no, and in this case, I, I, I've been very fortunate that um, uh, they've really welcomed me into this, this family, essentially. And I've been able to be on set for the whole film. And during press, you know, Ridley always sort of makes a point to say that, that I'm the writer of the movie in spite of the other, the other credited writer, you know, so it's, it's a very um, flattering thing. And, uh, but yeah, I think it really took a while just because um, you never know which one's the right one. You never know which one's the one that's going to click. And um, I think it's just important to, to keep going and to keep writing and, and, and obviously it's just one project away, you know, it's one script away. And, um, uh, that, at least that's how I felt
0: with me. Roberto, mille grazie, mille baci, iguri, and House of Gucci is in theaters right now. Grazie mille, Antonio. Ciao. ciao. Ciao, ciao, ciao. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.